Thank you, David, for those very kind words. Now I know what it'll be like to go to my own funeral. <laughs> Thanks. I, am, I, I do wish you a very happy Labor Day, whatever labors you're allowed to have uh, at this stage. I'm, uh, I can't decide if I'm more busy or less busy than usual. I feel more busy because we have four children uh, right now in three different educational models. We have virtual, we have remote, we have hybrid. This time last fall, I'd never heard of any of those. But then again, I'm less busy because I'm not running kids around to volleyball games or anything. They're all at home with me all the time. So it's a, it's a mixed bag, labors. I actually do wonder at times about the value of, of the comparisons we make to, to prior days, pre-COVID days, 2019, ah, the good old days. Because um, <laughs> honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure the value of it. This is the present that we have. This is the present in which we live. These are the choices, these are the loves and hates, these are the labors that we have now in the present. Why look elsewhere? I've often wondered if a bit more resilience, a little bit of stoicism is probably more useful than all the 2020 Facebook memes put together. Brian told me this morning I could uh, do whatever I wanted. <laughs> Famous last words. Because you're between series, right? You just ended a series last week, and next week it's, you know, you're starting something new, as David was talking about. So, he, yeah, he gave me permission to do whatever I wanted. So, I figure I'm, uh, I'm going to take him up on it, <clears throat> and I'm going to tackle a question this morning that has come my way so many times in 2020 that I've actually lost count. Um, and I've actually kind of stopped caring a, a little bit just because it comes so frequently. And it's the question of, the end times, eschatology, the study of last things, the final things. Is the day of the Lord upon us? Is the chaos around us a sign that the return of Christ is imminent? Like little children in the back of the minivan on vacation, like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? God is saying, be quiet or I'm going to pull this van over. I mean, honestly, you do look around. It does look like the apocalypse out there, does it not? Yeah, pandemics, government conspiracies, flood, riot, earthquakes, forest fire, murder hornets, presidential elections, all the fun stuff. One travesty after another, it seems. Surely if ever there was a ripe time for the Lord's return, it seems like now, yes? Well, when most people are interested in what the Bible says about end times or, or last things, they're almost always talking about Revelation, the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, filled with all of its apocalyptic imagery and strangeness, and I have to confess, I know better than attempt that. I have some sanity left. Less often they're interested in the pastiche of observations that make up Paul and Peter and John's letters throughout where they make comments about the day of the Lord. Some even less often they're interested in sort of the Old Testament prophets from whom Peter and Paul and John got their imagery. They talked constantly about the day of the Lord, the coming day, that day, in those days. Well, with only one shot this morning, 
Guys, of course, this, could be a, these, this conversation could be long and heady. Uh, I'm going to go straight to the horse's mouth. I'm going to go for the words of Christ himself. Now, Christ frequently spoke about the days to follow after his earthly ministry was completed. And while he did sometimes speak directly, didactically, you know, like a teacher to the subject, just as often, maybe even more often, it, it, it arrived in the form of a parable, the form of a, of a story. And so I've chosen to examine that today, a story from uh, Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids, from which I'm going to offer to you what I consider to be the single most important thing there is to know about eschatology. And I'll shock you with this. It's not about where you draw your arrows and the chart about who goes where when. Something else that's far more important that Jesus is going to put his finger on today for us. But the first thing that we have to do before we climb inside any part of the Bible, any story or anything, is set the context up. Because you've got to know the, the, the setting around it. That makes a difference. So you, the first thing you have to know about this parable is that it takes place, Jesus offers it, in the final week of his life. In Matthew's account of these events, it happens after the triumphal entry back in Matthew 21, right? The triumphal entry sort of marks Jesus coming through on the back of a donkey and the palm branches and all that, marking the beginning. Seven days, six, seven, some odd days later, he will go to the cross. So we're in the final moments of Jesus' life, mere days from it. And we're told in Matthew 24 that as he sits on the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So this is a private look. This is a Zoom between Jesus and his disciples just for them. They ask the question, he's going to give it to them. And Jesus gives in response to it one of his most expansive sections of teaching anywhere in the Gospels, extending the better part of, of two whole chapters. And he gives it to his disciples. And his answer is just what you would expect. It's ominous. Perilous times, abominations, false prophets, wars and rumors of wars, the sun darkened like unto the days of Noah. Two men walking up a hill, one phew, taken, one remaining. It's apocalyptic imagery of the very end of the world. And then right in the middle of that teaching, he offers actually two parables to illustrate his point. Now, as you might guess, these two parables are not the most popular ones in the biblical canon. This is not the prodigal son. This is not the good Samaritan. They're more ominous. In fact, the one we're going to camp on today has actually left, has been left out of several significant studies on the parables, and discussion on it is very uneven and uh, not very, very good quality. But as I mentioned, the one we're going to really camp on today is a, set of, is a part of a set of two parables. So you have to understand them both together because they offer a complete thing. So we're going to jump back into chapter 24, the very end of chapter 24, and I'm just going to read for you. It's a short parable, and we're just going to leave it there. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over the household to give them their food at the proper time? Right? That's the household manager. But if that wicked servant says to himself, Hmm, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see why it doesn't preach very well. 
But the point of it seems obvious and clear. The master, beware, the master may return sooner than you expect, so be ready. To which we all say, okay, good, that's the question I want to know. Is it coming now? Are we ready? It's a parable, as if written to us in our time. Could return any moment and cut all of this off. Unfortunately, Jesus wasn't done, and he added a second parable, which seems to say exactly the opposite. And he seemed to put them together as if to recognize that his hearers were going to say, okay, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because now he offers a parable that we'll read in just a moment, but I'll give you the ending now. The final thought of it seems to be, the one you're waiting for may come later than you expect. May come sooner, may come later. And the question in both of these stories is the same. Are you prepared? Are you ready? Are you ready for the one you wait for to appear Today, or not for 100 years? Are you prepared for the wait? Like so many of his parables, this one will begin with those words, the kingdom of God is like. One more little caveat before we pile into it. You've got to be careful with this language of kingdom. It's a very fuzzy and malleable kind of language all through the Gospels, throughout the New Testament even. Kingdom of God can refer to many things, can refer to the the abode of God, the place where God dwells, God's kingdom, unchangeable, real as God's own self, unconquerable, unchanging. But it also is sometimes means that offer that Jesus came making to the nation of Israel, the kingdom come to the promised people, that kingdom breaking into history if they will but embrace their redeemer king as their Messiah. Well, they didn't. They put him on a cross. And so the kingdom also can refer to the work of the spirit now in our midst, that our very life together is or ought to be an expression of that kingdom, a kingdom of the heart, manifested now here in the world, but yet still a foretaste, a sort of foreshadow of something greater that's coming. Like you get to play a part in something bigger that's coming now. And there, of course, you get the fourth referent, the kingdom as referent of something that is yet still coming. And that's, of course, what people are interested in when they want to talk about the last things, the end times. What is yet to come? Well, this is a parable made for you. Jesus says, Matthew 25, he opens up the parable. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, just so you know, you can insert here safely uh, for 10 virgins, bridesmaids or maidens. Whichever causes your children to ask the least awkward questions. Well, you'll notice even at the beginning, the opening of it has a slight change to it. It's not the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is. It's the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God will be like. It's a future passive. It's clearly giving us a picture of some future thing. It's got a future reference, something yet coming. Just like the parable that preceded it about the, the servant who beats his fellow servants. So, well, what is this kingdom going to be like someday? It's going to be like these 10 bridesmaids who go out. So we're talking about a wedding. Wee, yay, everyone loves a wedding. But this is not a wedding that you're gonna recognize because it's a first century wedding. And the bride, and of course the bridesmaids, bridesmaids then as well, is likely to be 12, 13 years old. Very likely. So you must not hear in your imagination, think about that 20-something from The Bachelorette. 
This parable's about references what we would most likely consider children. That may explain a bit of it. In fact, the groom himself would have been unlikely to have been older than 18 to 20 years of age in these arranged marriage times. But I have to tell you, beyond that, we've got great difficulty because we actually don't know much about first century Jewish weddings. Archaeologically, we just don't know much about the fact. Much of what is said is actually drawn from a text like this. Well, you can't draw it from this text and then turn around and say, see, that's what they're like. That's kind of a circular kind of thing. Much of what is said is therefore kind of suspect. Practices change rapidly for weddings, and there's no guarantee that weddings were celebrated the same. I mean, think about our own culture, right? Weddings are very, very different, and they change from generation to generation in their practices. In fact, we were driving in the car somewhere several months back in the, in the pre-COVID days. We were driving along somewhere, and I was recounting to my kids some memory. I don't even remember what it was of some wedding I'd been part of or in or attended when I was a child. And, and one of them sort of like leaned forward right in the middle, cut me off and said, you, what, you threw rice? Why would you throw rice? Completely lost. And I had to, re I had to confess, I actually didn't know. You just, well, that's just what you did. You there it is, right? I mean, it's better than stones. One generation is enough to breed mystery around wedding practices, much less now 2,000 years. In the end, however, we have to conclude that the disciples would have known what Jesus was talking about, and that's what's important. That's why he doesn't explain further. But what we can reasonably infer from, origin, from source material of, of, the, of the period is that the bride, this very young bride, would spend her engagement time living in her father's house, as you might expect, until it was time for the wedding. And then the wedding would consist of the, the groom you know, making this procession through town to come to the bride's home to receive her, take her back to his home for, how should we say this? For the consummation of the marriage, Right? And then there would be this large party that would last for several days and things like that. It's a, it's a little fuzzy. Sometimes this large banquet party would be the result of the, the groom coming to the bride's home, and then they'd have a party before he would take her away. Sometimes it appears to be the opposite, that he would come, receive the bride, and take her back to his home for the big party. Maybe both happened. Again, it doesn't matter. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is these 10 young women now waiting out in the street for the bridegroom to arrive so that the feast and the procession and all of that can begin. Now the text, Jesus wants us to know that these 10 bridesmaids are not all of a piece. They're not all the same kind of person. In uh, verse 2, we're told that five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, little paraffin lamps with the wicks, you know, and the, and the liquid and that sort of thing, we still have them. When they took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. We have here what's called sort of in, in uh, sort of grammatical terms a syncresis. It's a teaching method. It's a comparison of opposites. Jesus is very popular with this. He does them all the time. Jesus is always comparing, you know, wise and foolish builders. who builds his house upon the sand, you know, that. Or he's talking about the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. He's talking about the wheat and the tares growing together in the field. Jesus is always about comparing these opposites. Does it all the time. So we recognize it. We've got these 10 bridesmaids, five of which are foolish, five of which are dubbed wise. And what makes the difference? The ones dubbed wise have apparently both the oil that's in their lamp and some additional in a jar or a flask or something like, you know, hip flask full of oil with them. The ones dubbed foolish have, quote, none. 
I mean, which really can only be read as that they have none, they have no extra, they have none to spare. They certainly have the oil in their lamps or they wouldn't be there at all. I mean, that wouldn't just, they wouldn't be foolish, they'd just be dumb. They would not, I didn't bring any oil. They've got the oil apparently in their lamps. What they lack now, and this becomes to be, this is the point. What they lack is the additional oil that will be required if the bridegroom doesn't show up on their timetable. begins to get a little heavy already, doesn't it? Here are these 10 young ladies. Understand the difference between them is not their love for the bride or their longing for the bridegroom. They are equally pious, equally dedicated, equally consumed with ardor for the event. They're the same in every way, apparently, save one. How long can they wait without seeing their beloved? The difference is their preparedness to endure. Well, Murphy's Law was alive and well in the Old Testament. And we're told that the bridegroom delayed. They all became drowsy and they slept. Remember, they're mere children. They do not appear to have been faulted for sleeping. Sleep, the sleeping doesn't appear to be the problem here. Both the wise and the foolish sleep. This is not an issue like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus says, stay awake, pray, and they fall asleep anyway. It doesn't appear to be something they're faulted for. They're just tired. It takes a long time. Rest is necessary. They all fall asleep. That's not the problem. The problem is what happens next. Like in, a, like in Cinderella, the clock strikes 12, and they're all jarred awake with the cries. Verse 6, but at midnight... There's a cry, here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all of the bridesmaids rise, these maidens, they go out with their lamps, the foolish and the wise, and the foolish say to the wise, here, here, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. But the wise, of course, answered saying, well, since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather and buy, go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Like the grasshopper to the ant, quick, give us some of yours, give us some of yours. And the wise, virg the wise uh, virgins, the bridesmaids, say to themselves, well, you know, what is the value of us all having just a tiny little bit? Then all of our lamps go out. Go get some. They've apparently burned through all of the oil in their lamp. The wise who were prepared for such a contingency produce their extra, refill their lamps, and continue to wait. The foolish have none. So they must go off and try to purchase more. Now, of course, there's a debate in the literature as to whether the shops would even be open or closed at this time of night for them to buy any, to which I say, it's a parable. Just a story. Give it a break. And we're told in verse 10 that while they had gone to buy, while they were out trying to buy more, the bridegroom comes now through the streets. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Behold, he comes. So they, they go in, and the party begins. And while they are away looking for more, the, the bridegroom comes, and the door closes. So now the party begins... The foolish bridesmaids are not there. All things begin to happen, and you know what happens at, a, you know, at, a, at such parties, right? They're going along, doing the stuff, and right in the middle of uh, the country line dance, you're just about to find out where Cotton Eye Joe actually comes from. There's a pounding at the door. The foolish bridesmaids have returned, with or without oil. We're, not, we're not actually not even told. 
So little does it matter now. They come pounding on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open up, open to us. Now realize, you've got to understand where they're at now. They have missed everything of importance. They've missed the presentation of the couple. They've missed the toast. They've missed the cutting of the cake. They've missed the first dance. They've missed the opening of the gifts. They've missed the tossing of the bouquet. They missed the, the, the first fight between the mother-in-laws. They even missed old Uncle Albert, the family lush, passing out in the fruit salad after making several very inappropriate jokes. Frankly, they've missed everything that makes a wedding reception worth going to. They've missed it. And now these latecomers show up and want to be admitted as if nothing were wrong. Remember, it's a story. This is not a, what's coming is, is, is not a suggestion of how you ought to run your wedding or your children's wedding. It's a parable. The groom is apparently offended by their presumption. He actually answers to them, I don't know you. Who are you? He says, in essence, here, I, I, I thought you were my friends, but you didn't even show up until now. Truly, really, I, I really don't know who you are. My friends are all here. Whoever you are, you are not welcome. This is going to show up on Reddit, folks. And like, people are going to go, oh, what a jerk. But there's a point being made here. Jesus concludes with these words. Keep watch. For you do not know the day or the hour. The delay in the coming of the groom is actually the structural center of this parable. There is no parable without it. It is the point. It's non-negotiable. This parable is about what to do in the face of a long delay. A long wait. The foolish bridesmaids are not prepared for the long wait. If the groom comes quickly, comes on their own timetable, on their own expectations, then all will be well. But what if he delays? What if the groom's timetable isn't the same as theirs? What will they do then? Are they prepared for the dark hours of waiting to get darker still? Do they have the determination, the resiliency to endure, though the night grow even more absolute? Though uncertainty grows and sorrows multiply? Is this the end? Are we there yet? Should we be casting our eyes to the heavens with sudden expectation? One bridesmaid to another? I don't know. I don't know. It's complicated. In truth, there is a part of me that wishes we would all just stop acting as if it were the end of the world. As if 2020 were somehow a uniquely terrible year by historical standards. Truthfully, really isn't. If you think we are the first generation to face mysterious ailments, inconvenient loss of personal liberty, challenges to our affluence and prosperity, racial unrest, or limitations on our modes of worship or commerce, forgive my bluntness, but you, you just don't know any history. Now, I want to pause having said that because I do not wish for one moment to minimize the real, genuine, 
and terrible losses. So many people in this season, losses of health, losses of livelihood, losses of community, of loved ones, of liberties, of a sense of security, for some even a loss of hope. These are real. And I'm not pushing them aside at all. What I'm saying is, if the return of Christ is supposed to coincide, if it's time to coincide with the worst moment of history, we're nowhere near it yet, friends. 2020 has been calamitous for us, to be sure. Yes, it has. But if you know anything about human history, calamity is the norm. It's actually this relative, this period, this long period, which has lasted my whole lifetime, really, of relative peace and prosperity that, that, that we've sort of experienced here in America. Now, that's actually the exception, not the rule. My great-grandmother, dear Grandma Ketty, who I loved dearly, was born 120 years ago this year, a mere 120 years ago, born in the year 1900. And in the year she was born, she was born into a world without air conditioning, telephones, refrigerated food, or Velcro. Christmas for her consisted of an orange. They didn't even have Novocaine yet. You think you hate going to the dentist. Yes, my friends, this all may be a precursor to the day of the Lord. Perhaps, yes, maybe. Could be today, could be tomorrow. But it won't be because the human plight has suddenly gotten incalculably worse. Oh, we suffer, yes, and our sufferings are real, genuine, true. But honestly, our sufferings are of no more exquisite quality than our grandsires. And in fact, that's really the key in my mind. That's the key to this whole story. It's the key to make sense out of the whole thing. We look forward to the day of the Lord, to the coming of the bridegroom, not because our sufferings are somehow unique in history, but precisely because they're not. Because they are common. Because we're all in it together. Those alive now and those alive before. History's been hard on everybody, folks. Nations have always raged. People have always plotted in vain. It's the fallen human condition. So think of it this way. I want to take 2020 now. I want to take the whole COVID thing and I want to flip it on its head for you. I want you to never think about it the same. I want you to think about it differently from this day forward in light of this story. Our sufferings, our very real and genuine sufferings through this time represent our opportunity to join the rest of the human race. Both around the world and in history. And in the acknowledgement that the world such as we meet it in its brokenness cannot continue in this vein forever. God will not allow it. Christ has so promised. Now whether we see the heavens opened in our own lifetime is not the point. The point of the promise of the return is not so that we can compare our sufferings to our forebearers, conclude that it can't possibly get any worse, and then dictate the timeline of heaven. Our griefs, our troubles, the unique troubles that our generation actually endures, which are real and heavy, as diverse as they are, are meant to do the same work in us that previous generations' troubles were supposed to do in them.
No more, no less. What is that work? I'll tell you, it's the most important thing about eschatology. It's the most important thing about thinking about the end times or the last days. It's the most important lesson you can learn, and is this. It, these times have come to teach us how to wait. To unsettle us in our callousness. To wake us up, to teach us the virtues of endurance and patience. To remind us that hope, our hope, does not ultimately rest on things like a vaccine or elections or Supreme Court decisions or stock market gains. As lovely as all of those things are, these troubles come to teach us how to long for the bridegroom. When I was a teenager, here's the obligatory closing story. Just, you know, I'm following the form. When I was a teenager, our, our church youth group made several uh, missions trips, one-week missions trips up into the exotic locale of Wisconsin so that we could volunteer at a little place, I think it's still around, a little home for disabled folks called Shepherd's Home. They had a, it was a, it was a Christian home where residents, it wasn't so much physical disability, but it was usually, uh, well, about 70% of their population had Down syndrome of their residents, other sorts of uh, mental, emotional sorts of uh, struggles. Often they would be adult children of, say, missionaries overseas who, couldn't, who could no longer care for them and needed a place for them to be. So they had uh, several hundred of such residents, and we would go and cook meals and participate and teach them, you know, how to tie their shoes every morning. Uh, any of you who work with populations with, with, with those kinds of challenges know it, it's, it's not easy. Um, but they are dear, sweet, and, and wonderful people. They, they, let, they hang on to, their, to the beauties of their childhood longer than most of us can. And then they hand it back to us. But in those days of uh, there, we heard the lore and the legend of Shepherd's Home. And they have the story, I presume it's real and not apocryphal, but it's a story of a young woman, a young, a Downs, a Downs lady, young, 50, 50 year old uh, Downs uh, lady, who would jump out of her bed every morning, rush to her window, and, and you know, push up the sash, pull the, pull the curtains apart to see if there were clouds in the sky. And if the sky was cloudy, she would get all excited and run around, and her whole day was made. To which I always thought, man, she should just live in Michigan. She'd be in a state of perpetual euphoria. But no, it wasn't that she loved clouds in that sweet childlike mind. She just knew her Bible. How is Jesus supposed to come back? On the clouds. So if there's clouds in the sky, today could be the day. And that meant something to her. What did it mean to her? Now, I appreciate, I agree with all the things we do to help people who have, you know, uh, different, differently abled people with different struggles and capacities to, to help them survive and thrive in the world and all the ways that we, we help them we should, and that's right. But sometimes we may do them a bit of a disservice if we don't also acknowledge something they know very well. I'm thinking, again, of many of these Downs folks, many of them who know very well that they labor and struggle with a the kind of bondage that they see others don't have. And this, this lovely lady understood something about her pain, her suffering. She understood what the return of Christ actually meant to it. A striking off of the shackles. Life, like she's never been able to enjoy it. 
you understand the point? Her sufferings, her labors, her burdens that she could not escape on her own had taught her something. They had taught her what it means to long for the bridegroom. Had taught her how to prepare her heart to live both with the expectation that it could be today and may not. Her lamp was full. Her sufferings had given her a reserve. She was prepared for darker days or for the glorious beginning. I'd like to invite you as you continue your journey through 2020 and the good Lord only knows what's coming for us in October. Let your pains do the same for you. And remember, you are not alone. Cling to your brothers and your sisters here and love one another. And above all else, don't forget that you wait in good company. There is one who waits with you. Your brother in heaven, sitting at the right hand of his father, is waiting waiting for the day when his father will raise the divine hand and say, now. Oh, he waits with deep longing for his bride. And then that day when his father raises his hand and says it is time, my friends, nothing is going to stop him. Not kings, not kingdoms, not pandemics, not elections, not the Supreme Court or the stock market. He will come on the clouds and knees will bow. So be faithful, O church. Be faithful, O Christian, to wait patiently and with longing for the words of the bridegroom. Arise. Arise, my love. Come away with me and enter into joy. Will you stand with me? I would like to give you a blessing before we sing. It's the blessing of St. Columba that he offered upon his people and I offer it to you now in the period of your waiting. See that you be at peace among yourselves, my children, and love one another. Follow the example of good men and women of old, and God will comfort you and help you, both in this world and in the world that is to come.